Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Arthur Brooks, author of the new book, The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America. Mr. Brooks is the president of the American Enterprise Institute and was previously the Louis A. Bantle Professor of Business and Government at Syracuse University, where he taught economics and social entrepreneurship. Arthur is also the author of 10 other books and hundreds of articles on topics including the role of government, fairness, economic opportunity, happiness, and the morality of free enterprise. Vital topics. Arthur, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Ben. Great to be with you. Great to have you. So, Arthur, the premise of your book, and I think our audience definitely agrees, is that conservatives, libertarian-leaning conservatives, independents, we have superior ideas, yet time and time again, we have failed to win both the minds and hearts of Americans. Why are we failing to articulate our ideas effectively, and what should our message be? Thanks. Great question. Uh, the first problem that we have is that we forget our true purpose as conservatives. Uh, conservatives can tell you chapter and verse that our ideas have been better at creating more billionaires than any other system in the history of the world. What we forget too much is to lead with what's most important, and that's remembering ourselves what's most important, which is that our fight is a fight for people with less power than we have. We're in a country that's hurting. We're in a country that's built on the concept of the pursuit of happiness, individual dignity through merit and hard work, and the whole concept of equal opportunity, yet those things are falling away. Those things are falling by the wayside. I mean, it's a, a, the, the book, The Conservative Heart, has all the details on how bad it is, how much worse it's getting to be the bottom of the income distribution in America today. It also shows in real detail that liberals are not going to solve this problem. They can't solve the problem. It's not that they hate poor people. That's preposterous. I hear conservatives say that sometimes. It's not true. It's that they can't help poor people because their solutions make them dependent and are actually worse for poor people, almost worse than not doing anything at all. The only ones who can help are, are, are us. And if we forget that the purpose of the American experiment is opportunity for those who need it most – then we're actually not worthy of calling ourselves conservatives. And that has to stop. Then, when we remember that, then we need a communication strategy so people can see what's written on the conservative heart, that we are pro-poor, that we want an aspirational society with equal opportunity. And at that point, we could see a wave of support that's greater than any support for the conservative movement that we've ever seen. A key insight early on in your book is that you write that progressives, and I quote here, understand that minorities fight against things while majorities fight for people. How can those on our side who believe in negative powers for government argue that we are fighting for people? In other words, it's much easier as a progressive to say, here are the 15 things that the government can do to help you. How do we counter that effectively with our conservative principles? It's, uh, it's a tricky proposition, to be sure. When you basically believe in limited government, you believe in limited government in, in a negative sense. You believe that taking something away is important, so you fight against that thing. Meanwhile, your opponents are fighting for people with the very tool that you're fighting against. And that puts us in a minority position, as you just stated, and it puts them in a majority position. How else could a 20% minority, which are liberals in America, call themselves the 99%, which is how they characterize themselves in, 
know, all the Occupy debates, and they love that character that characterization. The way that we need to argue is not fighting against government programs. It's rather fighting for people that are having barriers put in the way of their success. And here's how we do it. For all intents and purposes, we need to remember the secrets to a successful, happy life. This book, The Conservative Heart, contains the four secrets to a happy, successful life for everybody. Rich people, poor people, black people, white people, doesn't matter. If you're a person walking this earth, there are four secrets to a happy, successful life. They are in order. Faith, family, community, and work. Work not as a source of money, but as a source of dignity and earned success. Faith, family, community, and work. If we remember that these are the important things for everybody, then when we talk about government programs that get in the way of those things, we're not being negative and fighting against those things. We're fighting for the people that need those institutions. So when you look at a government program that's, that's a regulating activity, economic activity into oblivion, that's making it harder to start a business cutting grass or doing something that perhaps President Obama would call a dead-end job, but which isn't a dead-end job because there aren't any dead-end jobs. If you're thinking about government doing terrible things, don't fight against those government institutions. Fight for the people that are being hurt by those institutions, and then you'll start sounding like a a majority. Really crucial insight that comes out of your book that you sort of touch on there is this uh, this paradox at the heart of our – Politically, political ideology spectrum, which is materialism versus idealism. So the left is always based in materialism, and their opponents should be based in idealism, yet our side speaks in terms of materialism, and the left speaks in terms of idealism. Draw that out for us a little bit. You bet. I mean, this is the central political irony of our time. The left is fundamentally materialistic. They believe that money, particularly money from the government, can solve people's problems. If they didn't believe that, they wouldn't have pursued the war on poverty for the past 51 years that has left the poverty rate exactly where it started after $15 trillion going down the pipe. Materially small differences in how materially satisfied and and, and, uh, how people are, are consuming, but big differences in idleness, in dignity, in uh, living good, upright, moral lives. It's left people dependent and desperate. It's been horrible. Why? Because all we've done is pour money into the poverty problem. That's materialism, and that's how the left basically is how it thinks about itself. That's how it thinks problems are solved. Yet they wrap themselves in moral language, the language of compassion and fairness. Hmm. Materialists dressed up as moralists. That's the left. The right. Who are we? We're, we're moralists. We believe in the dignity of every individual. The non-negotiable principle of conservatism is that each person is made in God's image as an autonomous individual who has inherent dignity and who deserves opportunity. That's what it means to be a conservative for all intents and purposes. Everything else is extraneous. That's at the core. That's a moral proposition. And we're passionate about it. We're nuts about it. Yet we wrap ourselves in material language of fighting against deficits and debt and the size of government and getting rid of regulations. So we're moralists dressed up as materialists. So what does America see? It sees the outward appearance. uh, And they want the moralists. So they vote for the left and then hate the policies. What they really want are us. And the only way they're going to know that they want our policies is if we don't 
keep dressing ourselves up as materialists. As we talk about what's written on our hearts about the country that we really want and the opportunity that we want for every single God-inspired uh, creature walking the earth. And, and of course, interestingly enough, capitalism, I'm sure you agree, is the most moral, si- moral system and all of the abundance the material pleasures that we are able to acquire in life are the result of that moral system. Speak a little bit to that. Yeah, this is actually the reason I'm a conservative. Um, I'm a conservative because poverty is what I care about the most. Um, this is very central to me with my Christian faith, but also just I think as a, as a secular uh, I mean, in my secular life, as just an ethical individual, I care most about people who've been left behind. And when I started studying in my in my 20s, I didn't go to college at the ordinary time. I dropped out of college when I was 19. I, I wound up finishing my college education when I was 30, which was a great advantage because I was studying without being brainwashed. I was a, I was a grown-up. And when I was studying economics, I was shocked to learn that in my quest to figure out what could solve poverty, that poverty, starvation level poverty around the world, has decreased by 80% since I was a child. And in looking for the reason, 2 billion people, by the way, have been pulled out of starvation level poverty since I was a kid. I didn't know that. I thought things were worse. They're better, much, much better. So in, in trying to figure out how you save the next 2 billion people and how you can bring all that progress more to the United States, where the poor, it's better to be poor in America than in the third world, but we've stagnated and the poor are being left behind, so the progress isn't as good, I started looking at the reasons. Why is it that these people have been pulled out of poverty? And the answer is basically globalization, free trade, property rights, the rule of law, an American-style free enterprise. And, by the way, in places like the Pacific Ocean, the American military that's kept sea lanes safe for world trade for the very first time in human history. It was American conservative ideas of free enterprise and American leadership that pulled billions of people out of poverty. That is the most impressive, important humanitarian achievement. It is a great moral good, and it's been done by American ideas, and we didn't even know it. That was working while we were sleeping. If we want to pull the next two billion people out of poverty, we need to be warriors for free enterprise and shout this from the rooftops. No more than materialistic nonsense. Talk about saving the poor, and then let's watch ourselves win. Let's talk about one of those people who was in poverty that is a central character in your book. Tell us the story of Dallas Davis. Dallas Davis, it's a, it's a wonderful story. The, the book is full of these stories, and, and it's so interesting. As a social scientist, I get used to doing data. But when you talk to people who pulled themselves out of poverty, who built their lives, like Dallas Davis, here's the thing, the thing you find. Poor people who've gotten themselves out of poverty, they might not know they're conservatives, but they are. They know that it's conservative principles, whether they call them that or not, that help them. And Dallas Davis is a perfect case. This is a guy who was homeless in New York City. He wound up in prison. And after getting out of prison, he was homeless again. And a, a, a revolutionary, inspirational, visionary program in New York City called the Doe Fund, started by a good, strong Catholic couple, took him in, gave him job skills, and he turned his life around completely. Now, here's the key thing in Dallas Davis's life to keep in mind. When the government looked at him, when the liberal state looked at him as a poor guy, a homeless guy, a drug-addicted guy, a felon, it's not a terrible liability to manage. This is how a lot of the world sees poor people, liabilities to manage. But when the couple that started the Doe Fund, their name are George and Harriet McDonald, 
when they looked at Dallas Davis, they didn't see a liability to, to liability to manage. They saw an asset to develop, an asset in the human family. And they developed that asset through the blessing and sanctification of ordinary work. They held him to the same work and moral standards that any of us would hold our kids to. He started out pushing a bucket down Fifth Avenue and cleaning the streets. And he graduated to more technical work. And today he's, he's, he graduated at the top of his class. He has his own apartment. He's reconnected with his family. He's taking care of his kids. And he has a full-time job. He's connected with his faith, and he's a happy person. This is how we repair people's lives. This is how conservatives can bring the, 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 the witness that we have to what leads people to be successful and happy and help people understand that that's written on the conservative heart. Let's talk about another example of abject poverty writ large that has been transformed dramatically over the last 30 years, and that's the example of India. Tell us about that. India is an, is an incredible case for our listeners who haven't paid that much attention to India, and I'm going to assume that most haven't been to India. It's an unbelievable story what's happened over the over the past decades. The first time I went to India, I was 19 years old. I was uh, working as a musician. The reason I dropped out of college when I was 19 is I wanted to be a musician, so I was working as a musician. I went to India on a concert tour. This is an the 80s, the mid-80s. I've never seen poverty like this. People with leprosy, children starving to death on the street, abject poverty, beggars every place. It was terrible. It was lost. It was a lost society. Now, I didn't know why that was. I thought, well, just poor places are poor. They're always going to be poor. Well, the reason that India was as poor as it was was not just history. It was because it was in the grip of socialism. The Soviet Union had inspired uh, Nehru, the first prime minister of the modern state of India, to impose all kinds of central planning that led to crop failures, it led to industrial policy, and it led to poor people dying by the tens of millions, and that's what I saw. Well, when I started going back to India in more recent years, as president of the American Enterprise Institute, I do, our, our group does work there. And when they were doing their work, when we go to, to, to look at the work that's going on in India today, you see a completely different country. Why? Because they've modernized. They've tossed out the socialists. They've adapted American capitalism to the Indian market. So what do you see? You walk through a slum in India today, you see poverty. A lot more poverty than you see in the United States. But you see work, and you see optimism, and you see hope. I was in a, a slum in, in Mumbai recently. And the slum's called Dharavi. For, it might sound familiar to some listeners, because it was the slum featured in the movie Slumdog Millionaire, as a matter of fact. <clears throat> and I was talking to a guy. And he, his job is, is sorting recycled toothbrushes, plastic toothbrushes for recycling. Crazy job, right? Talking to him, it sounds really terrible. It sounds like it's very sad. But when you actually think about it a little bit and you talk to him, it turns out that his daughter's a flight attendant and his son's becoming an electrical engineer. That's a society that's on the make, and it's on the basis of hard work and merit and aspiration and good public policy. Mostly, it's about capitalism and the American way, which can be the Indian way. Just to transition a little bit, we've talked a, a bit about the principles that are winning principles that are good for not only this country, but the entire planet. But 
when the pedal hits the pavement, there's the issue of political expediency or how to win, in, in other words, which sounds a little bit better than expediency. So one tactic that you recommend is stealing all the best arguments of the left, and, and you defend the use of the term social justice. Now, I would counter that the word justice needs no modifier. How would you respond to that? Uh, that's true. Justice is justice. Uh, you don't get one kind of justice is more important than another kind of justice. But the left has created the term social justice, and if we take it and define it the way we see fit, we start to win. Here's the idea. I mean, this is an idea that the left has been using forever. I mean, it uses rules for radicals by Saul Alinsky, and this comes right out of that concept. You want to subvert the other side, steal their language and steal their icons. Go where they live, walk into their house, take their furniture rhetorically while they're still sitting there because it's legal, it's fine. What we need to do is to stop getting uh, wiped out by the left because they own fairness, they own compassion, they own social justice. No. I believe in justice, and social justice is just as good as any other kind of justice, so I'm going to define it the way I see fit. And the way I define social justice is fairness, which comes from rewarding hard work and merit for people who are innovative and, and toiling by the sweat of their brow. It's equal opportunity for all. It's individual dignity as children of God. That's social justice from my perspective. That's the way I'm going to define it, and I'm going to fight for it. And I'm going to use the term so that no longer when somebody says it, it's code word for big-hearted liberalism. How do we stop a safety net from turning into the massive welfare state that we have today? So in other words, let's say that we had a Senate of Mike Lee's, a House of Mike Lee's, and a President Mike Lee who was able to reform our system and shrink it down and create a place where human capital grows, and thus we avoid having such a large number of people on welfare rolls and all of the other social pathologies that exist. How do you stop the welfare state from ultimately growing because politicians have an incentive to push people onto the rolls? Uh, you know, I, first of all, I got to say, I love the sound of President Mike Lee, I got to tell you. <laughs> I mean, Mike Lee's great. And so we get a President Mike Lee, that would be a good start on this. The second thing I want to bring up, however, is that I, I know it's easy for conservatives who are listening to us today to say it's always a slippery slope, but don't get started. Just zero out the whole welfare state. Just get rid of it entirely. Get rid of all the detritus of bureaucracy and all the big-hearted government as if government could dispense love. Get rid of the social safety net. Well, that's actually a very radical position that's not historically associated with conservatives. Friedrich Hayek, the most important uh, conservative economic thinking force of the 20th century, he believed that the first job of government was to create a socially sustainable safety net for poor people. Uh, he didn't think that it was going to make the economy more efficient. He just thought it was a good thing to do. Ronald Reagan said the same thing. He talked in rhapsodic terms about the importance of the safety net. He thought it was one of the greatest achievements of the capitalist system is that for the first time in human history we had the money that we could help people through the government and through private charity, we didn't even know. It's an extraordinary achievement. And, and I agree with, with Friedrich Hayek and, and Ronald Reagan on this. However, I know it can get out of control. So here's what I suggest to my conservative friends. Here are the rules of the road on the social safety net. The social safety net is something we should declare peace on. It's not that we need to lower the the spending on food stamps because we spend too much money on food stamps. We have to dedicate ourselves to a society where fewer people need food stamps 
and that comes from opportunity. So declare peace on the safety net per se, but only for people who are indigent. The reason that safety nets become so expensive is because they're for middle class people and crony corporations and rich people and people who aren't really poor and everybody in between. That's what happened to Greece, by the way. Greece is in a period of austerity today because they were insolvent. And they were insolvent because everybody and his brother in Greece was availing him or herself of the social safety net. It was for everybody, not just the poor. You've got to draw lines and you've got to be tough. You have to draw lines at the poor. And the third and the most important concept for the conservative social safety net is, remember this, always with work. Work is inherently dignifying. Work is a blessed thing. And to the extent that we can always accompany welfare with work, it shows our values, which is that unlike liberals who believe that work is a, is a punishment, conservatives believe that work is a blessing. So let's spend the resources and spend the money and make work requirements uh, part of every welfare program. It will be on the right track to make sure that this doesn't take over the whole con- the country and economy. I, I saw Rick, Rick Perry uh, give a speech in New York yesterday where he was championing a lot of the principles espoused by you and Charles Murray and others at AEI. And he was really speaking to a in some ways, a radical agenda in terms of fighting against the Republican establishment. What gives you optimism in a time when there is such a rift in the Republican Party between the quote-unquote establishment and the Tea Party, who uh, is basically in open warfare with them to some degree? Uh, I've, I've seen this play out a lot of other times. I've seen lots of cases where different factions exist on, on, the, on the right, and generally speaking, it works when there's a visionary leader who has a visionary aspirational agenda and brings everybody along. The reason we have fragmentation today is we don't have clear leadership, uh, and, and therefore the opposition that the Republicans have to each other and also to the liberal president is based on pessimism and division. It's a very normal thing. That the great political disappointment of our age is that Barack Obama elected in 2008, not that he was elected, it's that he campaigned on optimism and unity, but he's governed on pessimism and division. The natural reaction to the pessimism and division of Obama is a pessimistic, divisive opposition. It is a Republican Party that's very pessimistic and very divisive within itself and with the liberals. It's, a, it's predictable what we see. The only solution to this, just as it was the solution in 1980, is an aspirational, visionary leader who's not just following the, the, the electorate. See, this is the problem with politicians. They call themselves leaders, but they're not. What they're doing is they're following the worst sentiments of people who are frantic and angry about what's happening in the country. I mean, look around. The country's being totally led astray. There's chaos. There's lawlessness. There's so many things that make you feel like you're losing your country. I mean, people listening to us, they're, they're shaking their heads going, yeah, man, I'm losing my country. I, I feel like we're losing our country. It's not leadership for a politician to get up there and simply be a cipher for that anger. What a leader is supposed to do is to turn that anger into aspiration. Any leader who can't do that or won't do that is not, dig- is not doesn't have the dignity to be a leader of the Republican Party, or any party for that matter. And we have a real opportunity, I hope we do, to have a Republican candidate for president who can pivot from anger to aspiration. And when that happens, you're going to see less divisiveness. You're not going to see the same kind of open warfare. And you're going to see conservatives win in 2016 on a walk. What is the biggest, the single biggest threat 
to conservatism today and what gives you optimism that conservatism will ultimately trump all of its opponents? The biggest threat to conservatism today is the negativity that comes from simply fighting against things as opposed to fighting for people. It's the small ball fighting that we see. It's the basic sort of accounting tendency to look at all the things that we're against, to tote, uh, to tote them up and then fight them with, a basic, uh, uh, with basic anger, and then to not have a leader who can step forward, who can, who can bring us all into a better light of aspiration, which is to say fighting for people and fighting for every American. The biggest threat that we face is that we're not led, and so as a result, we stay kind of in the swamp where we've tended to be for a little while of fighting against things as opposed to fighting for people. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I actually look at the, the front-running presidential candidates today, the mainstream candidates, and I think that they're pretty optimistic people. I think that they have... Well, it's certainly a more aspirational agenda that we saw in 2012 or 2008. And furthermore, I feel that they care more about non-traditional members of the Republican Party or potential members of the Republican Party than I've seen in a long time. The basic math of conservative victory politically is making more people be drawn to us, not fewer people who are more angry and yelling louder. That's how you lose. That's how you always lose. But having more people who give us a shot who want to hear what we're all about, who say, you know, that sounds different than what I've heard before. People who are sitting on the sidelines right now, who are persuadable, that's how we do it. And I think we've got a very, very good shot at having four or five, maybe six candidates that are in the lead and are having a war with each other about who's more pro-poor and more pro-America. The name of the book is The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America. And we've been speaking with its author, Arthur Brooks. Arthur, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhwinegarden.